All right, if you haven't already done so, turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Um, And just to remind you, uh, the entire purpose of this sermon series is that I want us as a church to avoid the normal life cycle of a church. Okay, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Go to that next slide. Um, The normal church life cycle looks like this. You start out, you grow in your faith, you grow in your maturity, but eventually you kind of plateau, you just start cruising, you sort of take everything for granted, and then inevitably you end up with decline and dropout and finally death. Okay, this is the life cycle for a church. It is also often the life cycle for us as individual Christians. We start out on fire for God. Everything's great and wonderful, but over time it kind of just becomes what we do, and then eventually we sort of lose our passion for God and decline. I don't want that to be our story. Hey, I want us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and in 50 years from now I hope that we are all here more excited about what God is doing in us and through GCC than we are right now as we are still a young church. Fair enough? Okay, so as we turn to the book of Hebrews, which was written to a very small church that's kind of hitting that plateau point in its life cycle, the author of this book is encouraging this church, telling them you need to regain your passion, regain your fire, understand what's at stake, understand what we are doing, understand what real discipleship, what real following Jesus is all about. Okay, and so in this book of Hebrews, we have several principles of discipleship, several things that we are supposed to do as followers of Jesus if we want to remain on fire for God. Okay, so we talked about this the last few weeks. Uh, The first stage of discipleship is that we always start with listening. Okay, God has spoken to us through Jesus. The big question is, are we listening? Right, the next step in this process is that we must be aware of drifting. Okay, he tells us if we are not intentional in our faith, if we're not very intentional about what we are doing, then we will look up one day and see that we have drifted farther from God than we ever thought possible. Okay, then last week, we talked about the rewards of faith. Okay, because of Jesus, we have peace and rest and confidence. And if only we could see the thousands upon thousands of angels that are worshiping with us, then we wouldn't look around and say, oh, we're just a couple hundred people. No, we would realize we are a part of the great multitude of creation that is worshiping God. If we had realized to see, nothing could ever shake our faith. Okay, so then earlier this week, Monday morning, I was sitting in my office and I had a great plan as I started my day. Okay, my plan was to cover step four of this following Jesus path. And step four on my nice little list is that we have to understand the work of Jesus. Okay, so my plan Monday morning was that this Sunday I would preach one lesson on what does it mean when Hebrew says we have to understand the work of Jesus. That's really the middle part of the book. Hey, but then the more I studied this step, the more I realized that I am inadequate to do this in a single week. Okay, there's too much there. I think this is by far the most important step in this journey. And so rather than try to fit chapters 7 through 10 all into one week, we're going to slow down our pace a little bit. Uh, we're going to take the next several weeks to look at what does it mean for us as disciples of Jesus to truly understand what Jesus has done for us. Okay, so that takes us to chapter 7 this morning. 
All right, and in honor of Titus and Emily being here, I will share a story with you from my days at Oklahoma Christian, where the, the true cool kids all went to college. Okay? Um, okay, I don't know if they even do this anymore at Oklahoma Christian, but when I was there, uh, the big sport was basketball. Okay? They don't have a football team at OC, so homecoming and everything, it's a basketball game, right? And we all got excited about the big basketball games. And what we would always do, all the alumni would do it, lots of the students would do it, is everyone would bring a big newspaper with them to to the game okay and then when they were announcing the opposing players for the other team everyone would bring out their newspaper and put it in front of their faces okay and then is that, do they still do that at OC? awesome okay that's that makes me happy okay and what they would all do is they for instance they would say you know starting at power forward is david chisholm from da 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 at six eight or whatever you know and everybody all of the hey I self-identify as a 6'8 power forward. Don't worry about it. All right. Okay, but what all the students and all the alumni would do is they'd take out their newspapers, and as they were announcing that, they would get to the name, and then they would all go, who cares? And then put the newspaper back up, right? So, And then starting at da-da-da-da-da, is so-and-so from so-and-so? Who cares? Okay? And I thought it was great, right? That's a way to psych out the other team. We don't even care who you are or where you're from because we're going to destroy you on the basketball court. Unfortunately, the administration always thought that was unsportsmanlike, and they kept telling us to quit doing it, but I'm glad they didn't get their way, and at OC we still say, who cares? All right. I tell you that story because as I read Hebrews chapter 7, the author of Hebrews introduces us to a character, and you first read it and you want to say, who cares? Hey, Hebrews chapter 7 goes all into this obscure Old Testament character, a guy named Melchizedek. Okay, he talks about who Melchizedek is, and I have to admit, I'm asking, why do I care? I mean, I care about Jesus, okay, but why do I care about this random Old Testament figure? He's only in the Bible for a couple of verses. He plays an extremely minor role in one small encounter with Abraham. So why does the author of Hebrews spend more verses talking about Melchizedek than the entire Old Testament spends talking about Melchizedek? All right, something that we haven't talked a lot about in our study of Hebrews so far is that a big part of the book of Hebrews is a commentary on Psalm 110. In fact, many scholars will argue that the entire book of Hebrews is nothing more than a sermon on Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, there is one line of the psalm, Psalm 110 verse 4, and the entirety of Hebrews chapter 7 is telling us why we care about this guy named Melchizedek. Notice Psalm 110 verse 4. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All right, the book of Hebrews is explaining why Jesus fulfills everything in Psalm 110. And now Hebrews 7 is explaining how Jesus fulfills Psalm 110 verse 4. He is a priest like Melchizedek. And if only we would understand that, it would make us more committed to Jesus and more committed to the church. All right, before we get too far into the weeds on Melchizedek, I want to teach 
all of the wives here this morning a valuable lesson. Okay? This is a free service to you. Uh, this isn't necessarily part of the sermon. This is just free for you. Okay? I want to teach all of you wives how to change your husband's behavior without nagging. Okay? This is valuable material. All right, once upon a time, there was a journalist for the New York Times, a lady by the name of Amy Sutherland. And after 12 years of marriage, she was irked by some of her husband's habits. Okay, so she wrote the following about her marital experience. She writes, These minor annoyances are not the stuff of separation and divorce, but they began to dull my love for Scott. I wanted, I needed to nudge him a little closer to perfect, to make him into a mate who might annoy me a little less, who wouldn't keep me waiting at restaurants, a mate who would be easier to love. So like many wives before me, I ignored a library of advice books and set about improving him. But my nagging only made his behavior worse. He'd drive faster instead of slower, shave less frequently, not more, and leave his reeking bike garb on the bedroom floor longer than ever. But then a breakthrough came when I went to a school for exotic animal trainers in California to research a book. I listened, rapt, as professional trainers explained how they taught dolphins to flip and elephants to paint. Eventually, it hit me that the same techniques might work on the stubborn but lovable species, the American husband. The central lesson I learned is that I should reward behavior I like and ignore behavior I don't. After all, you don't get a sea lion to balance on a ball on the end of its nose by nagging. Okay, the same goes for the American husband. So back in Maine, I began thanking Scott if he threw one dirty shirt into the hamper. If he threw in two, I'd kiss him. Meanwhile, I would step over any soiled clothes on the floor without one sharp word, though sometimes I did kick them under the bed. But as he basked in my appreciation, the piles became smaller. All right, that's how you change your husband's behavior without nagging. Okay, and here's my point. You can browbeat someone and get them to do what you want them to do, right? I can tell my kids, all right, get in the car, and if you don't, I'll give you a swat, right? And I can make them, through the use of force, get into the car like I want them to. But it's a whole lot better if I say, okay, guys, get in the car, we're going to the park, right? Then what do they do? I don't have to threaten them. They'll immediately be in the car because I'm motivating them by something that they want, Okay, here's my point. People won't usually change because they fear negative behavior, but they will change to embrace something more positive. Okay, for instance, how many teenage boys act like slobs? Okay, and mom nags them all day. You need to clean up your room. You need to shower more. You need to do what's good, you know. And then they won't ever change. But then what happens is they meet a young girl who comes over one time and says, wow, it's really messy in here. Okay, what happens immediately later? Okay? That'll be the cleanest room you've ever seen. Why? You're motivated by things that are better more than you are motivated by fear of things that are negative. All right? In the book of Hebrews, we use both strategies, right? We talked a few weeks ago about here's the negative stuff. Here's what happens if you do drift away from your relationship with Jesus. But we also use more positive things in Hebrews. Okay? Last time we talked about the rewards of faith. There are great privileges and pleasures to following Jesus. 
Okay, now he's trying to emphasize to us that Jesus is the priest that we always wanted. Okay, he's not tearing down the old. He's giving us something more positive to embrace. Okay, notice Hebrews 7, starting in verse 11. He says, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? All right, here's the point of the entire chapter 7. If you only get one thing this morning, get this idea. That is that Jesus is even better than the Levitical priests. Jesus functions uniquely as the priest that we always needed. You know, we don't normally think about priests, okay? Priests are not something that's part of our normal worldview. We know a little bit about Catholic priests, but that's kind of a foreign concept to most of us, and that doesn't really mean anything different than just a preacher at church to most of us. Okay, but priests in the ancient world always served at temples, Okay, and just imagine for a minute that you're one of the Christians sitting in this little house church that Hebrews is writing to. You're probably sitting in someone's living room. There's maybe 30 or 40 people. More likely, there's 20, 25 of you sitting around. You're part of a small minority. You're being persecuted for your beliefs. It's harder to conduct business. It's harder to keep friends. Everything in your life feels like it's harder because you are a Christian. And so you're wondering, is it worth it to stick with this Christianity thing? You know that over in Jerusalem, there is a temple with hundreds and thousands of people that gather every day to perform these immaculate sacrifices, these big elaborate things. There's big elaborate feasts going. They have massive choirs and orchestras, and this is big to do. And there's this huge ceremony that happens when these priests in Jerusalem offer these sacrifices, and you're wondering, why is it better what we're doing in this little living room than the big show that's happening? in Jerusalem. And the author of Hebrews says, you don't understand. The priest who is working for you is so much better than anything you could ever get anywhere else. And if you would just understand that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, you'd understand how much better he is than even the temple and the sacrifices in Jerusalem. Okay, notice verse 4. He says, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from all the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Okay, I know that's a little bit confusing, uh, but here's his logic. Here's what he's saying. He says, if we can prove that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, okay, and we know that Abraham is greater than Levi, okay, because again, Abraham is the ascendant of Levi, and the older is always greater than the younger in terms of genealogy. 
Okay, then by virtue of the transitive property that we all learned back in high school math, we can show that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. And if Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, then Jesus is greater than all the Jewish priests. Okay? You got all that from those verses, right? Okay, that's what he's saying. Jesus is greater than all of these Levitical priests in Jerusalem. He's the greatest priest who's ever lived. He's the greatest priest who ever will live. And the great thing about Jesus as our priest is that he is still living and he is still serving as our high priest. Okay, now, here's why we need a priest. Okay, this is number two if you're taking notes. And that's because the function of a priest is to do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. Okay, the reason we need a priest is because we need someone who can do something for us that we could never have done for ourselves. You know, once when I was in college, I had a, a fan go out in my car. And I thought, you know, with my one semester of engineering, that I was fully equipped to change this fan out of my car by myself. I would just order a new motor for the fan, and I could put the new motor in the fan, and then everything would work great. That'd be a lot cheaper than the mechanic doing it. Okay, so I order this motor, it comes in, I'm very excited, I take it out of the packaging, I open up the instructions, and they're all in Japanese, which was not very helpful. Okay, so I tried really hard to get this motor to work. I never could get it to work. Finally, after a lot of, of money I spent on it, after a lot of time I spent on it, I took it to a mechanic and he fixed my car for me, right? Something I thought I could do for myself, but then finally I realized there was no possible way I could do that myself. Okay, often in life we try to do everything ourselves. Okay, and often in life we think that we are qualified to do all the stuff that we need to do for ourselves. If I need to be a better person, then the way I'm going to do that is I'm just going to try harder by myself. It's going to be by my effort that I get there. If I need to be more like Jesus, then I'll just make myself do that, right? But it doesn't work that way. You and I have to have a priest because we were never going to become Christ-like on our own power. I don't care how much will you have. I don't care how stubborn you are. And some of you are pretty stubborn, right? I don't care how much will you have. You will never become Christ-like on your own. You need a priest who can intercede for you, who can get you there. Okay, we cannot approach God on our own. We need Jesus. We can't live a perfect life. We have to have Jesus. We can never make it to heaven. We need Jesus. Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Okay, and the reason that we are here this morning and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord is because that is more important than anything else you have going on in your life today. Okay. All right, number three. Hebrews also tells us that Jesus' sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice. Okay, notice verse 23. He says, now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. 
Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. There's a lot we could say about this, but here's the two big ideas that Hebrews is trying to get across to us about Jesus as our priest. The first one is his sacrifice is perfect because it was once and for all. Okay, we don't have to go to a temple and offer new sacrifices. I am extremely grateful that part of my job as a church officiant isn't offering sacrifices, right? Imagine what it would have been like to live in a time where you went to a temple regularly, took a live animal, watched its lifeblood leave it, and then watched it be burned on an altar as a sacrifice, okay? I would much rather us gather around a communion table and remember the sacrifice that was made once and for all. Okay, the second reason that this is a perfect sacrifice is because Jesus himself was perfect. You know, one of the problems that we always run into in church is people say, well, church is full of hypocrites, right? Church is full of people who can't get it right, okay? And you live your life, I don't care how good you are as a person, I don't care how good you try, people can always look at you and at me and say, you know what, I don't need to have anything to do with the church because you're not perfect either, okay? The whole point, though, is that we don't have to be perfect because it's not about us, When we gather together as the church, we're not pointing at how great we are. We're pointing at how perfect our sacrifice is. And our sacrifice of Jesus Christ was 100% perfect. His sacrifice makes our lives easier. But much more important than that, it puts us into a right relationship with God. We don't have to worry about whether or not we get the form of the sacrifice right or whether our sacrifice was acceptable. If we are Christians baptized into his church, we are cleansed from our sins and we don't have to worry about the priest and the sacrifice and whatever else is going on because you and I this morning have a high priest who is offering himself as a sacrifice today in the throne room of God Almighty. We have access to perfection because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. If that doesn't change how we live on Monday through Friday, then we don't really understand Jesus. All right, we're going to talk about this more next week. Uh, But at this time in our service, we are going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. Uh, During the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. And we would love to talk with you or pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. This is the time in the service that we as the church want to be here for you in a very special way. Before we sing that song, though, I'd like to close us with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Come now while we stand and sing.